Well, good morning, brothers and sisters and, and friends. It is really good to see you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Just as a reminder today, we, we celebrate and we rejoice today that is this our, our six-year anniversary as a church. As we have covenanted together six, six years ago, and for that we, we, thank, we are thankful for, to the Lord and for his faithfulness and his righteousness and his kindness uh, uh, to us, and we're certainly delighted um, that we get to at least recognize and think about that today. Six years does not seem like a long time in the main scope of things, but certainly Lord has been guiding us and leading us, and we have seen his hand over these years, and to that we can give praise and adoration to, to him. So as we are now in Exodus chapter 4, was it 12 weeks later, we're in chapter 4, and then starting back in chapter 3, if, if we were flies on the wall, so to speak, or the side of the mountain, we could have seen this whole conversation that starts back in chapter 3 between the Lord and Moses. God appears to Moses in the, in the burning bush as the angel of the Lord, right? The bush that's not being consumed, that's burning but not being burnt. And the Lord mercifully warns Moses as Moses starts to approach this burning bush, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place you are standing is holy ground. And already we can see that, that God is setting the terms of the relationship that Moses and God's people are going to have with him. You can't approach me however you want. The Lord sets the terms. And Moses is, is terrified by this as the holiness of God is revealed to him mercifully. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, in which in this conversation he says three times to Moses. He tells Moses that he knows of his people's affliction, right? His, pe his people, the Hebrews, the Israelites that were in captivity and slavery back in Egypt. He knows. He knows their affliction. He's visited them in their affliction, and he has come down now to Moses to send him as a deliverer and to bring them out of the land of Egypt and out of the, from, uh, from slavery and into a land that is flowing and filled with milk and honey, meaning a good, a good land. This isn't Willy Wonka land, okay? A good fertile territory where they could grow their crops and there's plenty of rain and they would see great fertility in their labor. And God calls Moses to be the deliverer, to send him out to Pharaoh. And it should be pretty straightforward, right? This should be a pretty straightforward. Moses, I'm sending you. It should be a pretty straightforward from Moses, right? His answer should be, yes, Lord, I will go. I'm ready. Let's do this thing. He, that should be his answer. But that's not at all what happened. And this is why we're spending so much, so much time in this, because Moses keeps asking and saying, but God. Not in the way that Ephesians 2 says, but God, but in an excuse kind of way. But, I don't know. And he raises these questions and objections, and, and they even sound reasonable, and they are. There's some reasonable sense to these, to these questions. And the first one he says is, who am I? Who am I to go before Pharaoh? I'm old. He's 80 years old at this point. He's old. He's just a shepherd now. He's already failed once, right, going before his people and, and trying to deliver them. And this is the Lord saying, exactly, Moses, you can't do it, but I can. And I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to be all that you need to get things done. And I'm going to give you a sign, but this sign isn't going to be for here, and this sign isn't for now, but this sign is, is one that's going to come by the act of faith. If you listen to me and I will bring my people out, you will bring the whole nation back to this place where you are all alone right now, and they will worship me on the mountain. 
So in verse 13, you think that would be enough, that God is going to be with him. God's going to be with them. But no, second question, what is your name? Who do I tell the people who sent me? Who do I tell Pharaoh who sent me? Again, another reasonable question. Who is it? What, what's your name? Who, who revealed himself to you? And God mercifully answers him with his name. I am who I am. I will be what I will be. I am what I am. Yahweh, the Lord. Meaning there is no one like me or equal to me. I am beyond your understanding and comprehension. Yet I am showing you in my name that I am eternal. I am immutable. I am self-revealing, self-determining, and I will keep my promise to you and to my people. And now today, moving into chapter 4, I'm not sure why there's a chapter 4 here, by the way. I kind of wondered that. I'm like, why would they stop here? The conversation continues. But there is. There's a break here. This is still the same conversation. We hear Moses' third question. His third question or objection, and then we hear the Lord's answer. Let's look to chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, What is in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand, and he caught it. And it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign that they may believe the latter sign. Verse 9. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it out on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Have you ever objected to a command? Has anyone ever told you to do something, right? Person of authority said, do this, and you've objected to it. Now, I guarantee you there is not one person in this room who has not done that. Definitely growing up, son, go mow the lawn. I can't. I have homework. I can't. Mom told me to clean my room. Sometimes our objections are just excuses. They're not really good objections. Maybe at work, your boss might ask you to do something immoral or something questionable, and you have to object. I'm sorry. I, I cannot do that. And I think we all know that in, in good ways, we, could, we can stand up and we can object, and we should. We should object to things that are wrong, things that are immoral, things that are unjust. And we also understand, I think, in the same ways that we've made objections to doing things based upon laziness, based upon disobedience, based upon fear. And so we make excuses. On this Reformation Day, we celebrate or we look at this day each year 
actually October 31st, All Hallows Eve, the day in 1517 that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. We like to recognize the Protestant Reformation, and as we've already sang in our first song, we told the story of Martin Luther over and over again, and certainly that day in 1517 stands out quite a bit. But there's another day that stands out quite a bit in Martin Luther's life four years later in 1521. And that is when he stood before the council that he was summoned to be at, that he was called to be at, called the Diet of Worms. And he understood there being accused by the leaders of the Catholic Church and stood before him was John Eck, the Archbishop of Tyre, and before all the princes of the region and even the Holy Roman Emperor himself. And he was asked, Luther, do you recant of all your heresies in all of your writings. Because for these fast, for fa past four years, he had been writing vigorously on the doctrines that we know of the Reformation and the Protestant Reformation that we sang in our songs. If you want to know what we mean, go back to that first song, pick up the lyrics, and that's what we mean. Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, Christ alone alone, to the glory of God alone, and they would be asking him to recant these things. Now, the first time that Luther was asked this question, he, he asked, can I have some more time? Can I have some more time? This was a big thing. This was a big deal because his life was at stake, right? The, the movement of the Reformation that was happening that he really didn't want necessarily to happen, but it was happening, and also his very life. So can you imagine the pressure that's on him? There are very few moments in history like this. And he asked, can I have some time? And they granted him 24 hours. You got 24 hours, we'll come back. And, and um, Roland Bainton, the great Luther historian in his book he, uh, called Here I Stand, he said, anyone who recalls Luther's tremors at his first mass, meaning when the, uh, during his first time as a priest, he he was uh, facilitating the, 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 the Eucharist. He, he dropped the elements. He was so nervous. Um, he was so scared of what might happen. Um, we could interpret then his hesitation there in light of that. And he says, just as then he wished to flee from the altar, so now he was too terrified before God to give an answer, to give an answer to the emperor. And, and that night, how he... He spent that night in, in prayer before the Lord. And so as the next day came, he was then again asked, Luther, do you recant? And this time there was a, a boldly different man that stood before the emperor and the princes. And he said this, he said, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. Amen. So why was he able to stand? Because Luther had this towering fear of God and trust in his word, in God's word. God became greater and bigger than the archbishop and the princes and the emperor and the pope. And there was nothing that they could do to him, even death itself, that was greater than God. He knew the consequences, and yet he stood and he objected. He objected to the powers that be, and he would not recant the truth of God's word, nor would he violate his conscience, even if that meant imprisonment or death. Sometimes objecting to a command or a question is a good thing. But Moses is not objecting to his parents. He's not objecting to a teacher. He's not objecting to a boss or a prince or an emperor, not even Pharaoh yet. 
but he is objecting and questioning the Lord God Almighty. They will not believe me. They will not listen to my voice, for they will say that the Lord, you, you really haven't appeared to me, that all this is fake. Now, the, the they there is Israel, the people of Israel. God has not told Moses yet how they would respond. If you remember last week, we, we talked about how he already told him that the elders would believe. Chapter 3, verse 18, the elders would believe and they would follow, follow you. The Pharaoh, he would reject, he would not believe, verse 19. So up till now, Moses, how the people would respond is still a mystery. And he's betting on, in his objection, that they're not going to believe him. Now, I want you to see something, and I don't want you to misunderstand, but I think Moses is right. Moses is, is right. They're, they're not going to believe him. They're not going to listen to his voice. And I think in a way that the Lord responds to Moses' Moses's objection shows us this. Because the reality, again, is as he's learning this, it's not about believing you, Moses. It's not about them listening to your voice, Moses. It's about them believing the Lord. It's about them believing the Lord's voice and hearing the Lord's voice. Moses, you're just the instrument. And Moses is still learning that. If they reject you, they're not rejecting you, but they're rejecting me. Now, this may be a struggle of faith for Moses to believe and trust the Lord again. The Lord has already told Moses the end game, hasn't he? He said, Israel is going to be delivered. I'm going to stretch out my mighty hand and I'm going to deliver my people successfully. And they're going to come out wealthy. And that's a side note here. I think we can understand sympathetically what's happening here in the heart of Moses. The Lord has sent us out, right? He sends us out to bear witness to the nations and to those around us. Those, us, we who, who know the promise. We know the promise that he will redeem his people. And we know the outcome is success. And as a Calvinist, as Reformed believers, we have a supreme confidence in the work of sharing the gospel. Because the Lord has told us the end of the story. And it's our privilege to be used as instruments in sharing the gospel. Because we know that the Lord will save his elect. And yet, like Moses, we get worried. He's worried if they would believe him. And so God, as we've read, gives Moses three signs, three signs and wonders to show them and to prove to them that this is the word of the Lord. And that it is the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who has sent him. Trust in the Lord, not me. So what I want to do this morning is I'm going to show you two very important points. First is, is how the Lord has given Moses three signs so that the Israelites would believe. And then what those signs mean. And the second thing is, if those were the signs for Moses, then what about to us? What are the signs for us? Do we have a sign as Christians that we believe, that we can hold on to, to know that all of this and this is true and right? Sometimes when we read the Bible... We can have a misconception that miracles were just everyday occurrences in the Bible, right? But that's just not the case. That's not what we see in the Bible. Of course, there are miracles throughout the Bible, but they weren't every day. They weren't all the time. In the Old Testament, we see how God's works great miracles, particularly in the in the beginning, right? In Genesis and in Exodus, we see God do some amazing miracles. 
But miracles were not everyday occurrences. And yet here in these nine verses, we, we should gain an appreciation that these signs actually had an effect because Moses assumes the Israelites are going to have legitimate questions. So God gives legitimate signs to answer those doubts and those questions. And he gives them three answers. The Lord gives them three answers to give them. Three signs, three wonders to convince the people of God that, that he has spoken to Moses and has sent him. You know, there's a, there's a difference between signs and wonders. Wonders astonish, and signs instruct. Now, certainly, these three signs that God gives are quite wondrous, but these signs are given to instruct. They're given to point them to truth, and the truth is God has spoken. And this God, the Lord, the I am, the great I am, he has sent Moses to deliver you. And spoil alert, if you look down to verse 31, they're going to believe. They're going to see these signs and they're going to believe. And so mercifully, mercifully, God doesn't dismiss Moses' question or his objection, but rather, again, he gives Again, God gives, and he shows, and he answers, and he proves. And doesn't that tell us so much about how weak our own faith is and how great and glorious and faithful God is to us? How big a mustard seed really is in comparison to our faith at times. And yet the Lord still gives and grants. And so in this first sign, the Lord gives Moses in verses 2 through 5, he is to take his staff, and God takes his staff and he turns it into a serpent. Now God asks Moses, he says, what's, in that, what's that in your hand? Now God doesn't ask for his own benefit. God knows what's in Moses' hand. And Moses already knows what's in his hand. So why does God ask? Moses, what's in your hand? Because Moses needs to say out loud a staff. He needs to say it. He needs to verbally recognize it's a staff. Meaning this staff is not a magic wand. It's not some voodoo stick. And it's not some kingly scepter. It's a staff. It's a rod. It's a shepherd's staff. Meaning there is absolutely nothing special about this stick. It is one level above firewood because it's straight and it's hard enough to beat a sheep with or to hook a sheep or to beat a lion or a bear or whatever it may be. And it has made the cut to become a tool. But the Lord will use this ordinary staff in the hands of his deliverer to conquer Egypt. So the Lord tells Moses, hey, take that staff that's in your hand and throw it on the ground. And he takes it, and he, he does it. He throws it. I can do that. Now, that's a command I can do. He throws it on the ground. And when the staff hits the ground, it turns into a serpent. We all know what a serpent is, right? Okay. Like me, Moses ran from it. I don't like snakes. I'm not a fan of snakes. I don't want nothing to do with snakes. I understand that they are good snakes. They are bad snakes. But if one just appeared from something that I was just holding in my hand, we would be, I would be doubly terrified and scared. Come on, y'all admit you would be the same way. Thank you, brother. I mean, yeah, we all would be terrified, right? And he runs from it. He, he, he runs from it. Now, Moses' fear is showing us something as well. And Moses' fear is showing him something. And that is this. Moses you're not a magician, and you're not an illusionist. Why? Because if you ever seen a magician or an illusionist that had any worth to him, any salt to them, that they were actually scared of their own tricks? And Moses is not, he, he's not a magician. He's, he's, he's not an illusionist. So what it, what's going on in this first sign? 
So right now, we, we can see these things about God calling Moses. Moses is not an illusionist. The stick is just an ordinary stick. But first is this, is that the, in Egypt, the people where the people of God were living, they lived in a culture that was filled with magic, right? With magic, right? And I'm, we're talking magic, magic tricks, right? Magicians, Las Vegas, Viva Las Vegas, this is pairing tigers and all that stuff. All illusion, all sleight of hand. We all know that behind all them, there's some trick, there's some mirror, there's something, you know, women are not literally getting cut in half and put back together and ta-da, that's not really happening, okay? It's illusion, right? But in Egypt, it was filled with this kind of stuff, with, with magicians and tricks and sleight of hand, whiz and bang everywhere. And it filled their religion and their mysticism, and the, the magic was being, was being used as a means to coerce their followers and to build up in their, their gods. But God, again, is showing Moses, you're no magician, and, and that's no magic wand. You have no special powers. And when the Lord tells Moses to do something, after it turns into the serpent, and apparently he must have come back at some point, He's come back and he tells Moses to do something that I think for a lot of us crosses the line, like, uh-uh, I'm not doing that part. And he tells Moses to grab that thing by the tail and pick it up. We're not snake handlers, but what I have seen from YouTube is that if you want to capture a python in the Everglades, you have to grab it by the back of its head. Okay, you, first, you do grab it by its tail first, and then you would want to grab it by its tail. Now, they're not dumb. They know this information. This is something that people have been doing for decades, eons, centuries. They know how to handle a snake. A magician wouldn't even handle a snake this way, right? He knows that's a real snake. But Moses has to grab it by the tail. Grab it by the tail. And when he does, it becomes his staff again. Now, what's the significance of the serpent and the, and the staff? Now, we don't know for sure, but this probably was a cobra, right? The story gets worse, right? It's a cobra, right? You ever seen one? Go to one of those, what are they, what are them snakeatarium places? And, um, and they have snakes in there, and if cobras, man, they're terrifying. That was probably the snake that was there. And this serpent, this cobra, is, is symbolic of Egypt. Because Egypt, you would use this, the serpent as a sign, as the sovereignty and power of Egypt and their gods and their leader, particularly Pharaoh. The Pharaoh on his headdress, right? You've seen the movies had a little snake poking up on his scepter, had the head of a, of a cobra. It was an emblem of their religion and their power. And when the Lord tells Moses to put out your hand, to put out your hand, he's telling him, put out your hand and grab that snake by the tail. Now that's a, a lot like what the Lord had just told Moses that he was going to do. God told Moses that he was going to stretch out his hand, his mighty hand, and destroy Egypt. And what is God telling Moses to do? In a very small way, Moses, just follow my example. Follow my lead. And I will show the people what the, uh, the magicians in Egypt, they've only dreamed of doing. No sleight of hand and no trick. This is what God is showing Moses that he is supposed to show to the people in this first sign. He's no magician, but this is how the Lord Yahweh is going to crush Egyptian sovereignty and set them free. That's in the first sign. And the second sign. In verses 6 and 7 that God gives him, he, he, he is to show him how his, his hand becomes leprous by putting it in his cloak. In verse 6, God tells Moses to take his hand and to, and to, and to, put, it in his, and to put it in his cloak. And isn't it convenient that I wore a jacket today? It's almost like I planned it. And, and Moses is obedient, right? And, and, and just, to, just to kind of say, put this forward, Moses picked up the snake, by the way. He grabbed the thing by the tail. And picked it up. But he does, he puts his hand in his jacket because what harm can there be putting your hand in your jacket? And little does he know what's about to happen. Because when he pulls it out, his hand is covered in leprosy. 
His skin was literally flaky as snow. Not as white as snow, but as flaky as snow. Now what's amazing here is this isn't the kind of sign that faith healers do. This isn't the kind of sign that we see people do. Do you ever, do you ever see the charlatans on television doing signs against themselves? To prove that God is real, that God is doing this great work. They don't give themselves cancer and then heal themselves. But this is what God does to Moses. And in the text, Moses, he's recounting what happens, right? And he gives us a hint of, of the, the, the miracle what just happened. And personally, he shows us how shocking it was. And he says, behold, right? He goes, behold, he pulls it out. And he sees his hand, and it's left snow. I don't think any of us would say, behold. We would say, oh, no, what? He's terror, and he's terrified, right? By the, he's already been terrified by the presence of God. He's terrified by the serpent. And now he's terrified by the instantaneous leprosy of his own hand. But God tells him, mercifully. Put the hand back in your cloak. Again, this is another small act of faith because why would you now take something that is filled with this disease that bottom skin, the skin contact, and now put it back to your chest? And yet the Lord, again, he says, behold, heals him. In fact, it says he was restored like before. Now, this is a sign to Moses as much as it is to the people. Because God is showing Moses and he is showing them that this is his spokesman. That this isn't a trick, but this is a sign. A sign with an incurable disease. That Moses is the Lord's prophet and deliverer. And the Lord who has sent him. He has the power over regeneration. That he has the power over restoration and healing. That he has the power over life and death and making people new again. And then in this last sign, the Lord gives Moses in verses 8 and 9, he is to take a pitcher of water from the Nile and he is to pour it out on the ground and the water will be turned into blood. So if they, do, if they don't believe, Right? You see that in verse 8. If they don't believe your words by now, I got one more for you, Moses. Now, all of these signs, right, they have a purpose. The purpose is for their belief, for them to believe in the Lord that he has spoken to Moses and he has sent Moses to be their deliverer. And this third sign is very special and should have be pretty special in our minds and remembering that, that what God is showing Israel in this third sign is just the coming attraction of for what's about to come. Because in the first plague, God is going to bring upon Egypt. He's not going to change just a pitcher of water, but he's going to change the whole river into blood. The Nile, the Nile River, and we'll talk more about this when we get to that first plague, but the Nile River is Egypt. The Nile River is what made Egypt, Egypt. It's the primary source of life in the middle of the desert, the region there in North Africa. And over 4,000 miles long, starting south at Lake Victoria in Uganda, Kenya, and Tanzania. That's a huge lake, by the way. And it, it's one of those rivers that flows north. It flows north to Egypt and into the Mediterranean at Cairo and Alexandria. In ancient, Egypt, uh, in ancient Egyptian and non-Egyptian writings, the Nile is considered to be Egypt. If you speak of the Nile, you're saying Egypt. The Egypt, Egypt is the Nile, and the Nile is Egypt. And by God giving Moses this third sign, even though it's just a pitcher of water, he has given this sign for their faith. Because it's God showing his, again, his authority and his rule over even the most distinctive uh, source of life in Egypt. 
The Nile is the most distinctive source of life in all of Egypt, and it is to show them that even the Lord, Yahweh, the great I Am, has control over this source of life in Egypt, and that he will have victory over his enemies, and that he, has, he is no match for them. And that is the one who has called them out of slavery. Now, these three signs and wonders, these coming attractions, each of them have their meaning, and we just talked about them for Moses and for the people and their, and their, their symbolism. But what is the purpose of these signs? What is the purpose of, of any sign and any wonder that is given in Scripture? You know, that's a very important question. The, but the answer to this question is right there in the text. It's in these verses because these signs are connected to Revelation. They're connected to Revelation and that God is revealing to his people that he has delivered and has given them his word and the one who has sent him is the Lord. And so God has given these signs to Moses not to just impress the people, not to wow them, not to just meet their needs or whatever it is or to entertain them in the abstract, but to convince them to convince them to believe. And there we have that word, believe, there in verse 1, verse 5, verse 8, and verse 9. To believe in what? To believe in him, the Lord, the one who has sent him to save them. Now, these signs are to confirm the, the truthfulness of the word that he has spoken to Moses. And that's the way that miracles are used throughout the Bible. They are signs attesting to confirm the words of God. So imagine if, if you were a slave back then in Egypt, that is you and all your family, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents, and all that you've ever known, and all that your family for generation after generation has ever known is hardship, hiding your sons from death, remember that, forced labor, oppression, and yet you are in the land suffering and in slavery and you're waiting for the Lord to fulfill his promises. And then this guy Moses shows up and he performs these three signs and he tells them of the name of the Lord that has is, that is sent them. He throws these three signs and he wonders, he's proclaiming that the Lord the, of our fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has come down to deliver us now, in this generation, imagine that. And in these three signs, we can see how God is symbolically going to dominate Egypt. And we can see how Moses is his deliverer. Wouldn't that encourage you? Wouldn't that be an encouragement to you? They're not just about being mysterious or amazing, but they're about encouraging them. Encouraging them by, by uh, communicating deep truths about them being the people of God. But also encouraging that the Lord has sent his deliverer. Right? These signs are, are to show that the deliverer has come. A, a savior has come. And he brings the, the word to them. And he is given power. He is given the word. He is, he is to speak to them only what the Lord, that has, the Lord has given to him. You know, that's totally different from their experience, isn't it? Their experience is the magician, magicians and the, and the tricksters of their day. And frankly, brothers and sisters, from our very own day, God gave them signs. And God gave them a deliverer for their belief to follow his word. That's the meaning of the signs and the wonders in the Bible. To point them to the revelation of God. And to point them to Christ himself and to his deliverer. So, so what does all this mean for us? What are these three signs and wonders for, for the... Israelites mean for us? Should we be looking for signs? 
Should we, should you ask me to try to handle snakes and grab them by the tail? If not, you will get my resignation. Should I have a staff or some magic wand standing next to me? Should I be putting my hands in the coat and pulling out rabbits and the fake bouquet of flowers? Should we, should we be teaching you and others to know how to discern signs and wonders around us? To know how to read the stars, the moon, the signs around us in the world, the wars and rumors of wars? Should we be waiting and wanting and desiring for God to work miracles among us like we see in the Bible? So that would increase our faith even that much more. Do we need signs and wonders to keep, to keep going? Do we need signs and, 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 and wonders to assure our faith that all of this is real? Isn't that the argument made by so many in our culture today, though? That if God is real, why doesn't he just tell me? Meaning, why doesn't he prove it? Why doesn't he write it in the sky? Why doesn't he just, some miracle take place here and now? And, and if he did, I will believe. The human heart and mind demands signs. We want to see them. We want to experience them. We want to delight in them. People demand signs. And in Jesus' day, this was no different. People demanded signs. Now, now Jesus, as you read the Gospels, Jesus, has, Jesus did a lot of signs, and Jesus did a lot of wonders. Jesus healed the sick. He healed the lame. He, he gave sight to the blind. He turned water, not into blood, but into wine. He calmed the storms. He walked on water. He healed people with leprosy. He restored them. And he even raised the dead. And it was all done in the open. It's not, it wasn't done in secret. It's written in his word. Clearly, Jesus was showing signs and wonders. But people following Jesus in his day still demanded more signs. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Right? Do this, and we will believe. Be our pet monkey, and we will believe. Be our pet, be or whatever it is, and we will believe you. And Jesus says this, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights into the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, Jesus is certainly saying a lot here, but one thing that he is saying that we should be very clear is that it did not matter what he does. Look what he's already done. It doesn't matter then what he does or how many more he will do. No matter how many signs and wonders that he would do for them, it would never be enough. Evil and adulterous generation. This is the human heart. We could do all and wonders all day long, but it would never be enough. It would never be enough to convince the heart of stone. It would never bring about right belief. Sure, they may come back for more, and we may be excited that there's more butts in the seats, and we're totally full, and our bank account's getting full, and we can build big buildings and get better guitar players. 
We can get exciting about these things. But more signs and more wonders are not conjuring up the right belief of the transformed heart. They just want more. They want to be fed more. We want more, Jesus. Give us one more sign. But there's a second thing. Jesus does give them one more sign. He says, the sign that I give you is the sign of Jonah. Wait a minute. Jonah? Jonah, the, the reluctant, objecting prophet? That's the one. A sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah is Jonah. When Jonah tried to run away from God, you remember that? He tried to run away from God, and he was supposed to go to Nineveh. Nineveh. And God did what? God appointed, love that, sovereign language there in Jonah. God appointed a storm. And, the, he, and Jonah, he's on the boat, and the boat's rocking, and they end up chucking him into the sea. And he's there to die in the sea. And a great fish swallowed him up. Now, here's the thing. I love it how people say, this story's not real. Fish can't swallow people. Go on YouTube. There is a whale that swallowed a whole kayaker. I'm serious. And then spat it right out. It's, fun. it's hilarious, but really crazy for the kayaker. Here it is. Jonah tried to run away, and, and he comes, he's swallowed up, and this swallowing is what? It's a representative of death. Death has come upon him. But Jonah somehow, by God's mercy, three days later, the fish spits him out on the shore closest to Nineveh alive. And so the sign of Jonah is Jonah himself. And what Jesus is, is saying is the sign of Jonah is pointing to the, to the reality of, of what his very own, Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection. So the sign of Jonah is how God is sovereignly working out something glorious to the Ninevites. That he was sending someone, right? He sent some, someone to, to Nineveh to proclaim his word and for them to repent. And they did. Without signs, without wonders, they repented. And they turned back. They turned to the Lord. And so the sign of Jonah is pointing to the resurrection of Christ. And this is the gospel. Jesus was sent to the cross. He too was appointed by the Father to die and atone for the sin as the sacrificial lamb, and he was put into the grave. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead and he preached the gospel of the resurrection. And here Paul takes, takes us in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I deliver to you as the first importance. But I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he did that, why? So that we might be justified, that we might be saved from the power of sin and death. And that's the sign. That is the sign, the wonder that Jesus has given to us for our faith to believe to listen to God's word, that it is true and that it is right and that it is good for us. And so as the, the Lord gave Moses these three signs, right? He gave these three signs to them, the serpent, the hand, and, and the, the blood on the, on the ground turning from the water of the Nile. The Lord gave Moses these three signs for their faith to, to believe God and to trust in his word. God has given us the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a sign for our belief. You want your sign? Here it is, an empty tomb. He's alive. It's for your faith, for your belief. Is it lacking? Is it missing? Is it struggling? Go to the empty tomb. That's your sign. He is alive. And if he is alive, then all of these promises are true or right and find their yes and amen in him. I love this definition of faith. It says, faith is a positive certainty expressed in action. 
Authentic faith is not merely believing God, it's believing God. Taking God at his word, living in obedience to his revelation, whatever the cost. Because you know deep down in your bones that God will always do what he says, that his speaking is his doing. It is an abiding assurance in God and his promises that moves us to persevere in our obedience to him. Not some sign or wonder. And we know that our faith is sure and steady and rock solid and unwavering and certain because Jesus Christ has resurrected from the dead. The grave is empty. He is alive. And he is reigning right now at the right hand of God, the Father, and our brother praying for us. He is praying for us. And brothers and sisters, that is the sign that Jesus left you. That is the sign that he has left me. And there is nothing more that we should expect or nothing more that we should need or even ask for. A decade later after the Exodus, do you think the people look back quite a bit and look back and say, you remember that time Moses turned his hand in the leprosy? I'm sure they thought about those things, but what they really rejoiced in was what? The Passover. They rejoiced in the Passover and, and the lamb and how God delivered them from death and from slavery. He delivered him from, from death and from slavery and from the Red Sea. And they were thankful for that sign. And like us, we're, we're thankful for the signs and wonders that Jesus did in the Gospels. Those are, those are great. They're wonderful, but we have been given the greatest of all signs. And that is the power of God in the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Deliverer. So we do not look for signs and wonders. We look for the resurrection of Christ because that's what we have. And we have the word of God that fully reveals this sign to us. He has spoken to us. And we, have, we need nothing more. So let us believe and let us continue to believe that the Lord has spoken and that he has sent his deliverer and savior to save us from slavery and from sin and from death. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And all God's people said,